I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. The waitress told me it's the most visited national park in the country, and, instantly, I knew I was an asshole. I just know too much about this shit. Acadia, that year, was the ninth most visited park in the system, at two and a half million visitors a year, seven and a half million people less than the actual most visited, the Great Smokies. She told me that she'd made her first voyage into the park the week prior, although she'd worked as seasonal help for the past three years. We were maybe, at most, five miles from the entrance. I told her that I'd started in Montana, some 2,600 miles away. She was surprised I'd come all that way just for a park. I didn't tell her that I've been to 51 of the 59 U.S. national parks, from remote Alaska to the Florida Keys, from a volcanic crater on Maui to that big bend in the borderlands of West Texas. I didn't tell her about the toenails I'd lost while hiking in Canyonlands or about vomiting at the base of the Grand Canyon despite all the warning signs on heat exhaustion. I didn't tell her about the bed bugs in the hostel outside the National Park of American Samoa or the dead hiker I happened upon in Rocky Mountain. Didn't tell her about all the valued appreciating miles I've put on the engine of my Santa Fe or the transient friends I've made on trails whom I will never see again. Or about exhausting my bank account to the point of embarrassment by the age of 32. All just for the sake of the parks. I also didn't tell her that distance and travel and finance are not the hard parts. I first discovered the national parks in a time of need. I'd struggled with clinical depression since the age of 14, and for the next 10 years, suicide haunted my thoughts. To complicate this, I went through this dark stint where my friends just kept dying. To rare disease, accidents, self-harm. Then, my best friend Nate was murdered in a Kampala, Uganda terrorist attack during the 2010 Men's FIFA World Cup Championship match. Grief brought me to the wild. It saved me from myself and allowed for a trope-like story. Another broken soul seeks refuge in the woods. My solace first came in the form of Rocky Mountain National Park. I had moved there just days after Nate's death. I explored the park any free moment I had. Over 300 miles of hiking trails unfurled before me and offered a way to sweat out my grief, to erase the images of shrapnel, punctured lungs, and caskets from my mind. I was astonished. All this recovery from just one national park. Imagine what it would be like to visit more of them. To visit all of them. You see, the United States has 59 national parks, though at the time, I could list maybe 10. So I began my research. I stole a friend's travel-worn National Parks of the West guidebook and mapped distances from where I lived. 
The great sand dunes were within a day's drive, so I went. Then, I was offered a job in California and took the position solely because that state contains more national parks than any other. I had to see them, to get my heart right, and to get my head right. And that's how the goal was born, to visit every U.S. national park. By number 16, Kings Canyon, I had come to know a certain feeling well. I called them, oh my god, moments. A reflexive refrain I repeated each time I encountered a new wonder. Like the tunnel view of Yosemite Valley with El Cap and Bridalville Falls on the forefront, Sentinel Rock at middle distance, Half Dome and Clouds Rest further yet, or the Harding ice field of Kenai Fjords with crevasses that extend to the peak-pocked horizon, a patchwork of pressure bolstered by the glacier's restless eternal grind, or the bamboo forest of Haleakala, creaking and cracking as the stalks sway and the wind having grown, their whole lives now finally tall enough to reach one another. I'm talking oh-my-god moments like the bathwater turquoise blue of Diablo Lake in the North Cascades or the Devil's Golf Course of Death Valley, which gives this false glean of a lake from a distance only to reveal itself as this unending expanse of dirty salt pan. The list goes on and is not restricted to topography. There are the predatorless moose of Isle Royale wading Washington Creek in the dead of night, fearless diving snout deep for nutrient-rich vegetation, or the caribou of the taiga roughing the world's longest land migration. Crocodiles, alligators, California condor, the coil of a Pepto-Bismol pink Grand Canyon rattlesnake, and flora, too, the repetition of saguaro across the Sonoran, super blooms after a drought-ending downpour, the girth of old growth, from the bottomland hardwood of Congaree to the temperate rainforest of the Olympic Peninsula, and, of course, the Pacific Coast redwoods and sequoias. I am telling you, even to me, a brand-loyal agnostic, still, oh my god, moments. My plan was working. I'd made it to 41 of the 59 parks and found that my depression was lifting. So I decided to set my sights even higher, to up the stakes of investment and travel to what is revered as some of the world's most breathtaking terrain, New Zealand. I wanted to extend my goal overseas. I wanted to add their national parks to my list. But then something happened, something unexpected. I flew into Auckland, joined some friends who owned a camper van, and for a month, I tramped from the North Island to the South Island and back again. I hiked on glaciers and bathed under waterfalls. I climbed into the heights of their southern Alps and crawled into the depths of their glowworm caves. In short, New Zealand was a park chaser's paradise, but from the onset, I had this discomforting awareness I was reluctant to accept or divulge to my traveling companions. While hiking Fjordlands National Park, I was looking at some of the most dramatic scenery I'd ever witnessed, terrain straight from Lord of the Rings, once-in-a-lifetime landscapes, and I just didn't care. I'd broken my amazement meter. No more awe, no more oh my god. Because while amidst the grandeur of our planet, I found myself longing to be back in my tent, alone, curled up with a book, studying the craft of literature. 
I was longing for something different. And what a problem of privilege to have. I had seen too much beauty in too short of a span of time. New experiences now felt like those of old. Comparisons were always on the forefront of my mind, like, oh, this reminds me of the tide pools at Cabrillo, but with less biodiversity, or these look like the granite domes of Tuolumne Meadows, but smaller. In comparisons, I found, are often the crowning death blow of admiration. A pang of fear overtook me. I mean, I'd built my identity around this. I'd contributed articles to outdoor publications, advocated for preservationist ideals, and was writing a book and making a short film about my journey. I'd turned my outdoor hobby into this makeshift job and into a social expectation. But what happens when the thing you are most known for amongst your cohort, national park exploration, is no longer rewarding? When the very thing you have wrapped your ego around is no longer representative of who you are. When you've set an ambitious goal but become fulfilled halfway through, and yet still feel obligated to finish, even if you are just going through the motions. But perhaps I was overreacting. Perhaps New Zealand was a fluke. A one-time scare. Maybe being abroad had simply cast confusion on my frame of mind. So I returned to the States and visited more parks. Big Bend, Teddy Roosevelt, Dry Tortugas. And still nothing. As a final attempt, I ended up at park number 51, Acadia. I'd done little research for the trip before I entered the federal property. In fact, it was the least prepared I'd ever been. I hiked in flip-flops to the sheer amusement of other tourists, everybody having some snide footwear comment, but... I just couldn't care, because here's the reality. Just like in New Zealand, the amazement was gone. No reaction, still somber, lonely, and longing for late-night literature in my tent. It was true. I'd lost interest in the goal I'd set nearly seven years prior, because I'd let my body wander and now my mind craved the same. I'd grown bored with the celebrity of nature, these places branded as top wilderness or the sexiest wilderness to us as consumers. Acadia felt like a theme park, lines formed around cavernous blowholes and mountains that looked like mammaries. I found a dead fox hit by a car near the park entrance. It wasn't a favorable perspective to see the park through. I was alone and left to ruminate on what Ed Abbey had deemed industrial tourism. To clear my head, I hiked through a gorge that led to Cadillac Mountain, the highest point on the eastern seaboard. It didn't take long. An Atlantic breeze chilled me on the summit. I knew things needed to change in my life, and for the first time in a long time, I thought I needed a different kind of ambition, a different kind of wild. I was falling out of love with the national parks. And that, more than distance and travel and finance, is the hard part, learning to let go. A year and a half has passed since Acadia, and I've only been to two additional parks, numbers 52 and 53. I've got six left, five in Alaska and one in the Virgin Islands. Yet I now spend more time in front of my computer than on trails, more time writing about the parks than exploring them. It was a difficult transition at first. I gained a middle-aged potbelly and worried that my better years were behind me. 
Facebook's past year reminders sent me into these nostalgic fits. What's worse, the National Park Service's centennial occurred in 2016, and others took up my goal of visiting all 59 parks, but were doing so in 52 weeks. Many sent out on assignment by prominent magazines and syndications, getting paid to do so. Abruptly, it felt like this thing I had crafted my identity around was no longer unique. But that same year, in 2016, I attended an environmental writing conference. I hung out with bird watchers, butterfly experts, botanists, and saw how selflessly they engaged with their passions. The puzzle pieces of my past started to come together. I started to realize the true lesson the parks had taught me. After that conference, I bought my first plant identification book, followed by eight more. My backyard became a naturalist playground, a curiosity incubator. I started to notice the world anew, everything enlivened again, no more comparisons. I got just as much enjoyment out of wildflowers as I did from Yellowstone. Sure, Old Faithful is amazing, but so are its cutthroat trout and army cutworm moths and lodgepole pine. Sure, the expanse of the Great Sand Dunes is unlike anything in North America, but its tiny endemic tiger beetle is unlike anything else on the planet. What I remember most about Samoa are its bats. Crater Lake, its Mazama Newt. Hawaii, its Silver Sword Plant. You see, I hadn't actually turned my back on nature. I hadn't broken my amazement meter after all. I'd simply adjusted the lens. The parks, unbeknownst to me, had been teaching me about nuance. They taught me to love a Montana prairie just as much as a New Zealand fjord, and to fight to protect every inch of our planet as such. I hadn't actually become jaded, as I'd thought. I'd just learned to appreciate new, more subtle things. Like the whorl of sepals, petals, leaves, stipulants, branches, the taste of furbud on my tongue, sink foil, buttercup, milkweed, the columbine in my mother's garden. I hold these plants in my gaze, ground level, sitting amongst them, common paintbrush, arctic gentian, the purple down of thistle growing from cracks in the sidewalk, and I am led back to the places I have already been, Yosemite, Rocky Mountain, the Grand Canyon. But this time my attention is focused downward, on the flowers. (laughs) Tears fill my eyes. I inhale and whisper, ever amazed. Oh my God. I'm Tyler Dunning, and this is my short. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Need some great inspiration for your summer adventures? Check out Swell, a sailing surfer's voyage of awakening. A new book from Patagonia by Captain Liz Clark. A decade ago, Liz set sail alone from the South Pacific on her 40-foot sailboat, Swell. In this memoir, she shares tales of sailing in the high seas, of solitude and surprises, of finding connection to the earth, and commitment to living in harmony with it. Order your copy now at patagonia.com slash books. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Mountain biking season is now definitely here, 
Don't shove your dirty bike in the back of the car or use that janky old rack for another season. Visit kuatracks.com and check out their lineup of well-built, super sturdy, easy-to-use roof racks and hitch racks. Kuat, because you love your bike and not getting the inside of your car covered in mud. Support for the show also comes from Vossen Brewing. If you're in the Richmond, Virginia area, swing by their tap room on May 6th for the installment of MakerFest, a pop-up series where you can sip craft beer and shop for goods from local artisans. To stay up to date on all of Vossen's events, follow Vossen Brewing on social media. And always you, you guys, you totally keep the diaries thriving. Thank you so much. A huge thank you for Tyler for sharing his story. In 2017, Tyler released an essay collection, a short film, and a TEDx talk regarding his national park journey, all entitled A Field Guide to Losing Your Friends. He's now working on a memoir about his years as a professional wrestler. He still has six parks to visit. You can find more of his work at tylerdunning.com. Music today from Amy Stolzenbach, Bradley Carter, Ken Christensen, and Jason Tyler Burton. The tracks are used with permission from the artists. Jacob Bain and Nice Kodos composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and Becca Call and edited by Cordelia Zars. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Such an I still feel the same